All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Conscious Effort Podcast. I am Tyler. I'm Ryan. I'm Tracy. I'm Justin. We're picking up where we left off with Ryan. <laughs> this is part two. When we last left our hero. Totally broke. Totally no money. But before you start your stories, oh. we got to remind everybody that they can find us at ConsciousEffortCreative.com, at Facebook.com forward slash ConsciousEffortCreative, on Instagram at ConsciousEffortCreative, mm-hmm. and if you want to send us an email, send it to ConsciousEffortCreative at gmail.com. Now Ryan can tell his story about Nashville. So if I remember correctly, Brian had been fired from Soundstage. Mm-hmm. You were broke. Broke up with your girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Uh, Broke up with your sugar mama. Mm. She was helping you pay the Dummy. rent. Well, I mean, we were working at this. What we were working at the same place. So, no, she, it was it was not. It was, but you said you were working part time and interning full time. Yes. And you also decided to leave Soundstage. Did you leave Nashville altogether then? Yeah. All right. Where did you go from there? Oh, I moved back home. I mean, you got to think I was like, I was still only 19, maybe 20 at this time. So, it, you know, being a millennial type, it's not a, not such a big deal to move home. I mean, like I said, I wasn't really doing anything. Uh, after Brian left Soundstage, I pretty well left too, uh, because he was kind of my end there. I had finished my internship, and really, you know... Once you're finished with the internship, my plan was to go ahead and, and go ahead and get a full time job, and then maybe go down to part time interning, maybe somewhere else. Uh, well, because you know, once Brian was gone, it just wasn't fun anymore. You know, it was kind of kind of lame that he got fired and I was still there, and so and plus with the money situation, I mean, it sucked. So just moved back home. Uh, Where is home again, real quick? Uh, Washington, Indiana. Indiana. So you moved back. From Nashville, Tennessee, back to Washington, Indiana. Yep. And started working at Radio Shack in Jasper. <clears throat> so I was... You worked at Radio Shack in Jasper? Yes, I did. I did too. Oh, really? Yeah. Not at the same time, apparently. Yeah. Apparently not. <laughs> I probably took her jab. Uh, was John Hammersley it still the yeah. manager? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah John so Hammersley. when did you work there? Uh, would have been 2004-ish. Oh. It was over Christmas time. That was, uh, yeah, three or four years, about, yeah, three years before I started. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. yeah. We're actually, so she took your job. <clears throat> yeah. She we, was following in Ryan's footsteps and didn't even know it. Yeah, right. She's been stalking you for over a decade. <laughs> Let's put it this way. We were selling one of the first uh, phones with a camera yeah. on Verizon. Nice. You know, this is, this is how old this was, you know. It was like a one megapixel camera. That was a big deal. So anyway, I was working at Radio Shack, and there was this other guy working there. <clears throat> um, wasn't I, me, apparently. I can't remember his name. Uh, he was kind of goofy. He kind of reminded me of Shaggy, you know, from Scooby-Doo. Yeah. He kind of looked and acted like Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. So Did he use 100% of his power? <laughs> uh, I've seen that meme. Well, I don't know. He was just a goofy guy, but he but he did uh, live sound on the side with uh, this guy named Tim. I I won't say his last name because this story doesn't end very well. But he was he was uh, doing live sound with this guy named Tim, who was he was kind of doing local stuff at that time, you mm-hmm. know, uh, kind of like what the guys over there are trying to do, but maybe on a larger scale. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Tim actually starts growing his business a little bit and and i mean this is over the course of six eight months and tim's starting to get some of these bigger festivals bigger like local or regional regional and actually nationwide Hmm. so uh are there any festivals that you recall like a a name or just where they were oh i don't know what this one was called that we were following around i only worked there for like six months i don't remember the name of the festival i know who was playing it was uh uh, Further Seems Forever and Super Chick and somebody else. Uh, they were. It was a Christian festival that we were following mm. around uh, doing sound for. But Skillet? Nope, they weren't there. Audio Adrenaline? Nope. Oh, I remember there. Audio Adrenaline. These these guys were, you know, B-plus Christian guys, not A-plus. Oh, Lifehouse. No. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway Zing uh, We just lost all the Lifehouse fans uh, So anyway this guy he, he leaves Radio Shack To start working full time for Tim and Then he comes back in later And says hey man I heard, You know I remember talking to you You said you went to the conservatory And all that stuff Do you want to do 
live sound. I'm like, sure, why not? It's like, well, we're getting ready to go on this tour, and we need somebody, and we don't have somebody, and you're somebody, so why don't you join up? And literally, it was, it was, I literally had to interview, start building speakers, and leave in three days. And so John, God love him, he let me, uh, you know, do a shortened two weeks. He was cool. A three-day two weeks? Cool. Yeah, a three-day two weeks. And he said, you know, you could come back, which was awesome. I never did, but he said I could come back because he liked me. And, uh, yeah. So I went down to Evansville. And it was right off Fulton Avenue, this junky warehouse kind of place, and talked to the guy for a minute, and he's just like, well, all right, I guess you'll do. Hey, put these, start putting these speakers together tomorrow. Could you be more specific about that junky warehouse off Fulton Avenue? It was a junky warehouse off Fulton Avenue in ah, Thank you for the clarification. Yeah. <laughs> I'm having trouble placing that one. Uh, <laughs> well, let's put it this way. I don't know what this building was used for. I think they tore it down, actually, because it ain't there no more. Uh, well, the Radio Shack in Jasper isn't there anymore either. So It, it is not. Uh, Which one tumbled first? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, probably, probably the Fulton Avenue warehouse. So, yeah, I remember, uh, the, literally the next day after meeting Tim, uh, walked in there and started rebuilding his speakers for him. Uh, he had taken them all apart to refinish them. The, these were just the side fills. They weren't anything mm -hmm. serious. They weren't front of house. But they looked like shit. Oh, they, they were terrible. They were terrible. Just painted really bad, too. Like, someone, someone rattle canned these things. They didn't paint them right. But it didn't matter. These, but they were heavy. But Tim's brother actually was taught, told me what how to wire up, you know, the speakers because they actually had a passive crossover in them, and he told mm -hmm. me wrong. <laughs> and so, instead of disassembling everything, I just popped the uh, back panel off, and I told Tim I was doing it too. I was like, "Man, I'm not disassembling all these things. I'm just going to rewire it for you." And so I just popped the back panel off, you know, the little jack plate, mm -hmm. and then just. Resoldered everything so that uh, it would be right. <laughs> so, so yeah, uh, uh, you know, uh, a, a four-hour process ended up taking like eight, by the because he had twelve of these side fills, mm -hmm. and I'd done assembled twelve of them in you know in uh, four hours or so, plus other stuff. But yeah, so that, so he was impressed by that, I guess. He's like, well, at least this guy figured it out. Because I did test them. You know, yeah. that was the thing. You know, he, he liked that. He didn't like that they were wrong. And I was like, dude, your brother told me to do it this way. Because there, no, there was no way to know. All I, all I saw was wires, and I just, like, plugged them in. Uh, they weren't color-coded, like, the right way. So, so anyway, <clears throat> after that, we hit the road two days later and drove to Chandler, Arizona for the first show. And let me tell you, if you've never done live sound, I wasn't even really a roadie. I was like a, a step and a half above a roadie. It's still hard, hard work. And How big was the crew? Uh, we actually just had volunteers because it was kind of a Christian show. Mm -hmm. uh, we did have some people that knew what they were doing. Uh, that were there, but they weren't they weren't your typical roadie crowd. They were they were like uh, church folks yeah. that ran PA, you know. And so they knew a little bit. Like you told them, you know, hey, go plug this into the low end on on uh, this side fill, and they were going to figure it out. Though it was all speak on. I just want to point out how funny it is that you started in Indiana, moved to Arizona. Went to Nashville, went and then back ended to back, Arizona, ended up back in Arizona. Went yeah. back to Indiana, and then yeah, first gig back in Arizona. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. <clears throat> did you? Did There's you actually get a bit. Go visit any of your old haunts? Oh no, no, we were on a tour bus. We were on a tour bus. Uh, Tim had just bought this tour bus, and it was actually Corns. Uh, I mentioned that in a, in a previous podcast. Man, I'm telling you, you would open up certain compartments, and it was just like a skunk slapped you in the face. Especially in the back, back of the bus. Yeah. You know, uh, and there were these, these little cabinets and there was these little storage spaces at the bottom of the cabinet in the back of the bus. And you would just like, 
Not that I know exactly what weed smells like, but there was weed in there. It just smelled green. Uh, quite green. Mm-hmm. It was actually kind of nice. It had, you know, uh, TVs front and back, full surround, front and back. I thought you were going to talk about the odor of the weed. <laughs> it's actually kind of nice. It had some citrus <laughs> notes and a little. Is that bit where you watched uh, the Tobey Maguire Spider Man over and over again? Uh, no, uh, they actually. It was actually Harry Potter. I was watching Harry Potter. Oh. How um, ironic. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was actually watching here. Well, someone brought some DVDs. And so that was that was it. Uh, I'd actually brought my little PlayStation. I had one of those PS1s, little portable guys. Mm-hmm. I brought one of those. Tried to play. And this, the, the crappy thing was the bus was just a little bit too loud. Unless you just really cranked that surround sound system. The bus was a, just a little bit too loud to actually enjoy the movie. Mm-hmm. So you needed some headphones or something. And nobody did that. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, I'm sure now everybody would just like put headphones in and watch a movie on your phone, but you had a whole a tour time. bus full of live sound guys and no one thought to bring a pair of headphones. Oh, I rewired the whole sound system in the bus before we left oh. because, because it was doing Dolby surround and not, not full five one. So oh. I fixed that impressed him again. Cause he didn't know about like, you're too far away for me to pat you on the back, but yeah, I, I, I did it. So yeah, if you just turn around, we could, we could pat you a lot easier. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I just spilt on myself. Anyway, so there's actually an interesting story. Oh, no. About uh, on the way to Arizona. Okay. <clears throat> there was this nice old man. They, they never met him, but they hired him as the driver. This guy had oodles of experience driving a bus, you know. But what they didn't realize is that the dude was like 70. And not not like a healthy 70, but like... A, like 70, a, a 70, 70, a 70 about to keel over kind of guy, you know. Oh, no, is this foreshadowing? No, no, okay. no, he didn't die. Didn't die during during the trip. Spoilers, man. Oh, no, didn't sorry. die during the trip. Didn't yeah. die during the trip. I'm, I, I'm, so far as Ryan knows, he's not <clears throat> immortal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, we weren't really technically allowed to smoke on the bus. Now, we could smoke on the front, in the front, because there's like a little curtain and so you'd sit next to the driver, and he, he was a smoker, too, so he pretty well just had the window cracked the whole time. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, so, and so that's where we'd go up and smoke. You know, it was no big deal. Until we got to Colorado, because they took, they took 70 all the way. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I think this was middle of February, about, about this time. And, yeah, we're going through Colorado, and it is white out. Mm. through the mountains can't see the road and all i see is this little this little man behind the, the, the wheel doing one of these just squinting he's like sometimes you just gotta use your muscle memory to um, drive the road and i'm just i'm sitting there i i i don't even finish a cigarette i'm, I'm just like you just chain smoking scared him? shitless yeah I scared watch shitless this. watching what's going on this dude was still going 75 miles an hour down this freaking mountain <laughs> for those of you who can't see ryan is, is hunched over his yeah, microphone he, just, like just, a hunchback just, and he's just doing the wheel he's, he's got the he's got the wheel right up against his chest and he's you know imagine mr magoo behind a bus he's got it's it kind of like his, that he's got it against his chest because he's like if if we hit something i don't want to survive it <laughs> i'm telling you it it freaked me out. I didn't even finish that cigarette. I went back to the, back to the back of the bus and I hopped in my bunk and I went to sleep. Because if I was going to die, I didn't even want to know about it. Because <laughs> but somehow miraculously we made it down the mountain, uh, Flagstaff, and in, and into oh into Chandler. That wasn't a miracle. That was by the grace of Gene. Yeah. Well, or whatever his name was. <laughs> that's probably it. That's, that kind of sounds that right. Seems like an old. From now driver on, the driver's name, name is. Gene. That kind of sounds right. Honestly, All that right. kind of sounds right. But I mean, he was a nice guy. Hey, I am psychic. I mean, but he but he did kind of screw us on that first show though. Like we rolled into like we didn't even get to the arena. So I don't know what he was thinking. Like whether. Well, we ran out of gas. Uh, yeah, or, or fuel. I'm sorry. We, it's a right. diesel. We ran out of fuel. It's a good driver. And like out, out. Now, I don't know if you know anything about a diesel engine, but if you run a diesel engine out of fuel, you've got to prime it again. Mm-hmm. And which means the only way to do that is to pull the, the fuel filters off of it and fill the fuel filters with fuel and 
pray that you got enough battery to get the fuel all the way through the engine. Mm. And uh, we didn't. So they actually had to, they had a a couple trucks driving behind us that actually held the gear. And they actually had to drop the trailer off at Chandler Arena and then bring that truck out to give us a jump. Damn. After Tim's brother twisted those fuel filters off with his belt because they didn't have a fuel filter wrench. We were... Isn't that We were no shit half a mile away from a pilot. But for some reason, he stopped at this restaurant with no fuel, nothing. For a second, like he had to take a whiz or something. I don't know. But he stopped there, and literally, the bus ran out of fuel. Hey, well, Gene is 70. He's got to go. We were supposed to be rolling in. Yeah, his prostate's probably the size of my fist. <laughs> this and was you're th- this sitting was, here criticizing the guy for letting the this, bus. It's putting pressure on his little peanut bladder. This was three o'clock in the morning, and we were supposed to have enough time to grab showers and take a little nap before we start rolling in at six. But by the time that whole fiasco got over with, it was six thirty, and so we didn't you, get we didn't get any showers. We didn't even get a hotel room at all in Chandler. Which really sucked. So, so all this has happened. Jeans, farty bus. Uh, oh gosh! I mean, by the time this whole show was over, I mean, you got to think. People don't realize like how much time is actually involved in this. Yeah. You know, you roll in at six for a show at seven, and then you tear down, and then you're out of there at four. You're the talking, next day, you're talking rolling at six a.m. Six a.m. for a show that's at seven, 7 p.m. Seven p.m. Yeah, and then you're there, like running the show from seven to like midnight. And then midnight to 4 a.m., you're tearing down. Yep. So all so, this has happened, and you guys still haven't made it to the first gig. Yeah. So we make it to the gig. We start rolling in. By Luckily, the grace of Gene. Yeah, by the grace of Gene. And there's no volunteers there. But that doesn't matter. All we had to do was unload the light truck. No big deal. The lights have to go up first. Mm-hmm. No big deal. So they had the, the whole shebang. Uh, what oh, I didn't damn, realize. You guys had a shebang. Yeah, what I didn't realize is that for those that don't know, explain what a shebang is. Oh, you don't want to know. Oh, okay, we'll we'll just yeah. gloss yeah. over that. If yeah, you don't, you don't know, that's know. something. Your ignorance is bliss in this case. <laughs> you don't want to know what a shebang is. Yeah. So anyway, you we're can, at you can we're imagine. at the show. The none of the volunteers showed up on time naturally because it's six thirty in the morning. And so who shows we, up at six thirty in the morning? Really? I mean, hey, well, I was getting paid, so it didn't matter. I was getting per diems and daily rate, and it was pretty awesome. I was actually making pretty good money. Hmm. But what I didn't realize, though... Is that foreshadowing to the bad ending? Well, what I didn't realize, though, is that uh, my poor injured knees from high school really don't like that kind of altitude change Mm. and then immediate physical activity. So... So your knees became Gene's knees. Yes. Yes. Uh... It was actually kind of scary. Like, by 11 o'clock, I couldn't walk normally. <laughs> Justin is trying really hard to hold it together. <laughs> I, just, I just imagined your knees as genies. Gene, <laughs> <laughs> Granting wishes, mm. and your only wish is to walk well. And, and they're I like, can't help you, bud. <laughs> <laughs> Now, uh, Tim had a pretty impressive setup. It was a pretty impressive setup. Like, he he had leased all this equipment uh, from the actual manufacturer. You know, he, was a, he was a pretty smart business guy, you know. Uh, frankly, the fact that he basically grew his business from, you know, something like we, would, we saw at the Bedford show mm-hmm. uh, to something like that just in the course of, like, a year. No, nah, he had it figured out. Very nice equipment. Uh, now, what... I, I'm sorry if you already said this, but was he the engineer too? Yeah, he was front of house. Okay. And his brother was the, like the electrical engineer. Mm-hmm. He was the one who, he he could repair a, a gobo light. I watched him do that while I was assembling uh, speakers that hmm. first day. Like, yeah, as in SMT soldering, repaired it. That's cool. And he just seemed like, he was he was a sharp, sharp guy new truck engines and all that stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. I didn't know that much about that at that time. I mean, I could certainly wire up a set of speakers, but no, he was 
head and shoulders above me as far as just being just really sharp and intelligent about a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I may have caught up with him a little bit. So anyway, we're rolled in, uh, and we start, the volunteers finally show about nine. We start rolling in the audio gear. Uh, my knees are killing me already. Honestly, the the heaviest stuff was the electrical snake. I mean, these things were three inches in diameter. Huge copper slugs that you would plug into the main, mm-hmm. run the power box all the way back to the stage. Really impressive stuff. There was actually this guy who was a rigger. I don't know if you've ever seen someone do rigging in, a, in an arena. Mm-mm. It is amazing. So all this guy does, his only job, is to climb the ceiling to set the rigs for the, li- for the line arrays. The line arrays being the big speakers that you see. Yeah, oh, if you've ever been to a festival, the line arrays kind of look like a little, uh, look, little semi-arch. Yeah. And they're all speakers. And so this guy was getting paid $5,000 that day to climb, I talked to him, to climb the ceiling of that arena, like with, with a harness, you know, just, mm-hmm. but not, that was it. Like he would clip on to the uh, rafter and then he'd climb up a little bit more, clip on the other one, unclip one. Took him maybe 45 minutes. Does he have like a spotter or an assistant or something? No, it was just him. So he's That's why he's getting harness. paid $5,000. He's wearing a harness, but what happens if he falls? He just dangles there until I, somebody I, I, notices. I, I guess so. They pay somebody else five thousand dollars to I mean, go up and get it. I him. mean, there's like fifty people in in the arena at that time. I mean, I'm sure if he yelled loud enough, someone's going to notice. So he's like hanging out like Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible, yeah. and he's like, "Hey, he said that he I'm up here." He he said that he had two other places to be that day, two other two other riggings to do. I got two and more ceilings to yeah. climb. Yeah, this is nine in the morning, and this guy already made five grand. In 45 minutes. Fuck. But let me tell you. We're in the wrong line of work. Had, he had to have balls the size of basketballs to do what he did. I watched him. It was amazing. I've never seen anybody do anything like that. Just the kind of physical conditioning that it takes mm-hmm. to do that and not. I mean, wow. 45 minutes climbing all the way up the arena and then hitting two spots that were about 50 feet apart. And then going back down. Now, yeah. hold on. At the well, end of the show, does he have to come back to do anything? Oh, I'm sure. I mean, I don't know. I didn't see that part. Okay. All he was doing was putting uh, a rope, well, like a heavy rope. And uh, you ever seen those those heavy straps? He mm-hmm. would like wrap the strap through the, uh, uh, the rafter and then mm-hmm. drop a heavy rope to haul up a winch. And the winch is what we would attach to, to our... pull the rigging up. To our rigging, yeah. yeah. So like the trusses and, and the, right. the line arrays, the lighting trusses, I think he didn't have to put rigging up for those. Those were pretty light. Oh. Two people could actually move one whole section of lights. They're just aluminum, right? Yeah. Yeah. So they weren't heavy. They were only, they were maybe a buck 10 each, each rig. And we had four of them in a square. So I think that, I think that they had that stuff already set. Yeah. I didn't see that part. I just saw the rigging for the speakers, which were, of course, heavy. Each one of those speakers was 210 pounds. I bet part of the reason he's paid so much is because he's got a great deal of liability. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. But That's not a job you can do hungover. You could kill a thousand people if you <laughs> oh, fuck yeah. it up. Oh, yeah. And, and ruin. Or I you mean, kill yourself. Each one yeah. of those speakers is probably four grand. We had 10 on each side. Mm-hmm. And then we had twelve side fills, which were the which were not. I think ATC was the brand. I don't know, but they were top top shelf. These That's weren't these weren't sure these weren't JBLs. Mm-hmm. So anyway, you mean they weren't eighties? No, they were not. So anyway, next story. So the show starts. Uh, it was a big festival, and they were actually they actually had local acts come up and play, and and then they had the big name acts, uh, Super Chick, and Further Seems Forever. Remember the guy from Further Seems Forever, the guitar player, was actually playing a Basement 10. No, Basement 100. Yeah. Like a mid-70s. And it sounded really good. Ryan, but, was, Ryan was very jealous. Oh, yeah. I wanted it. But I remember the, the bass player for Super Chick. You've heard this story, Tyler. The bass player from Super Chick insisted on being wire, directly wired into his amp. Didn't want wireless. Mm-hmm. Didn't have in-ears. We actually had to put some monitors on stage. And so it was a 60-foot stage, and this guy had two 25-foot cables with a Boss tuner in the middle. 
At least and, he had some sort of buffer. And he would run from one end of the stage to the other and <laughs> unplug himself. Oh. Over and over and over again. As a stage manager, it was my job to run up there and plug him back in on my busted-ass knees. Nice. So I, I couldn't even walk up the stairs. I, I was, like, having to, like, uh, kind of crush myself up, up, the, up the stairs and then try to, like, discreetly hobble up on to, you know, over to the bass player's area and then plug him back in. And, and it beca- I could tell that he thought it was hilarious. <laughs> not, not that I was hurting, but that, he, that I, had, I was the poor bastard that had to go up there and plug him in over and over again. You know, Nobody. every time he took off running, he was probably like, this is really going to piss him off. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, mean, I mean, they were nice guys. I didn't get to meet the Further Scenes Forever guys, mostly because we were doing, set, we were doing whole set changes in like 25 minutes. We had six bands that were on this stage. Some of them were like, little young guys, you mm-hmm. know, like young local acts that were coming up there playing of various skill levels. And mm-hmm. then so they'd start with the really, you know, the 15-year-olds not quite there yet. Mm-hmm. And then they just kind of moved on up until until Super Chick played. So Further Seems Forever was right behind Super Chick. So I didn't really, really get a chance to meet those guys. But mm-hmm. I did meet the Super Chick folks. So they were pretty awesome. I actually got to run the monitor board for a minute. And then I messed it up. I was, was going to ask who who was the the monitor engineer. Uh, they actually flew a guy in, uh, someone that they knew to run the monitor board. Well, because they didn't trust me and they shouldn't have. So because uh, I just didn't have any time to learn their signal flow. Were they were they they wouldn't have been running digital back then? Oh they? no, these were these were two Midas uh, live consoles, very expensive. So you can set scenes and stuff like. Oh, that? Oh no, no, these were fully analog. Still, that sh- that shouldn't have been too. Too difficult for you. I would assume running a monitor mix is about like running different they, they were mixes running, in the studio. They were running in ears though, oh. and so I, I ended up with a lead singer that wanted more uh, more bass in his ears. Mm-hmm. But instead of doing like a a thirty minute turn on the knob, mm-hmm. as in you know like a hash, I did like a hour or hour and a half kind of turn on the knob. And all I just, all I see is him just do, just pop those ears out, and I was like, "Shit!" Because you just farted in his ears, man. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yep. Ruined it. Hey, I need some more bass. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh yeah. And that's what I, and that's what I saw is like I was just up there waiting for the signal to like stop, and all of a sudden he just goes. Pops them out. I'm like, Shit. maybe they just like, popped out on their own. <laughs> <laughs> they may his ears out. They may have. Well, you know, it was it was it was a fun it was fun, and we did that three more times. Uh, ended up Austin. Ended up in Austin. We were trying to, and there was this place that we were picking up. Anyway, there we were picking up bunks for the bus. I thought so you were going to say bums. Yeah. <laughs> now, when you say picking up bunks for the bus, are you talking about like beds? Mm-hmm. They wanted the bus to be able to accommodate more people. Uh, there were these storage areas that had like little bars so they could add more bunks and. Uh, because of the make and model of the bus, they couldn't just buy them. So there was this place in Austin, just outside of Austin, that we could get. This was like an extra day trip just to get these damn bunks. Damn. And so I was literally, I was that was literally gone for thirty days, and I was only supposed to be gone for three weeks. Mm. So, but you're still getting paid. Daily, right? I was getting per diems. You weren't getting a set amount, like a set amount for the tour. Uh, I was getting per diems, and I was getting a uh, day rate while we were uh, doing the show. You nope. been involved in a union? No. I was going to say, when you say day rate, are you referring to a union? You just said no. Day rate is whatever they pay you for doing the job. Okay. It wasn't yeah. union, no. no. Right. It wasn't okay. union. But it, I think that that's usually set by the union. Yeah, uh, more or less because the the company it was all... standard and it was good. Like I I kind of knew what you were supposed to get for those kind of live sound gigs, and I was getting paid fifty bucks more than what you were supposed to get. So nice. even though you weren't part of the union, you were getting paid comparable to what a union worker yeah. would. Fifty, like I said, it was fifty bucks more than what your average would have been at that time. I'm sure it's a little bit more now. Than your average for a stage manager or for a stage hand that had additional responsibilities? Yeah, for a stage manager. We didn't really have stage hands. And really, uh, for a production at that, of that size, you really don't need them. Right. You know, mostly 
volunteers, roadies, things like that, mm-hmm. or or people that work at the at the venue. You know, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes they'll pay a little extra to have crew at from the venue to be mm-hmm. there, and you'll see that in uh, other live sound productions, like the stuff that I did at the Victory and out in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. They had on staff people that if you paid a little extra they would be there to help set things up and right. that's and that's what stanley did what exactly is the difference between a stage hand and a stage manager does the stage hand just get stuck with more shit than what a stage manager uh, does a stage hand well it's it's about like anything else you know it's really de- it's really determined by whoever's paying you what your actual job is mm-hmm. you know so I was considered a stage manager by Tim because he wanted me to, you know, handle doing the the on and offs on the stage as far as like doing backline changes and getting the mic set up for the drums and all that fun stuff, uh, making sure everything was working up there, mm-hmm. uh, doing sound checks. I, I would do sound checks through the monitor board and all that fun stuff. Uh, and then I would be up on the stage while he's back there doing sound checks on front of house. So on and so forth. Right. Like we had to swap out a couple of DIs that we had, you know, countrymen's, mm-hmm. you know, that were not working right, or mm-hmm. or if, if the band brought a piece of gear that just wasn't jiving, we would have something to accommodate them to replace it. Some kind of backline. Yeah. So, so it kind of sounds like the term stage hand and stage manager are somewhat like the term producer in that. Hmm. The title itself doesn't necessarily dictate what your responsibilities are, like you were saying. Right. It's probably more just a designation of hierarchy, perhaps. Right. Stage mm-hmm. manager's above mm-hmm. the stage hand. St- the stage manager mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily mean that you do X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. That's determined by just whoever the boss is and what needs done. Right. Uh, but so, you're one step above the stage hand. Yeah. And so the stage hands in this case were probably more like the volunteers. Right. You know? Non-technical people. Yeah. And so I'm telling them, okay, well, I need these speakers over here. I need this heavy ass, uh, copper box of copper cable over here and so on and so forth. And so, so I'm kind of like as stage manager, I'm kind of the manager of the stage hands quote. Mm-hmm. And not to say that's that's going to be the case everywhere, but... You're a hand wrangler. Yeah. But in the case where I was doing uh, that musical production at the Victory Theater, I was actually the head engineer, mm-hmm. and I was directing the stage manager and the stage hands. Oh, so Does you that like to micromanage. Yeah. Well, no. That's, that was just how it was. <laughs> you already agreed. Yeah. That's just how it was. Like, I... Mm-hmm. I had elevated, right. <laughs> you know, so I was the, the front of house engineer and we didn't have a front of house and monitor engineer. So I was doing both, which was Bummer. a pain in the ass. Uh, mixing a live band and live dialogue all at the same time, doing sound effects up in the booth <laughs> by myself. Uh, yeah. Closed off booth? Uh, no, I could see the stage, but I... I had actually my own monitors and stuff. That's, so that's that was, what I meant. Like yeah, closed so I, off to the sound. Oh yeah, yeah. So I would actually be hearing it okay, and then all of a sudden the uh, the uh, executive producer would walk in and say, "Hey man, it's sounding a little hot out there." And so I'd look over at uh, uh, my assistant, who mm-hmm. was actually part of the venue. I'd be like, yeah. "Hey, keep an eye on this for a second. So I'd walk out front, and like, sure enough, my monitors would be fine. But I'd be cooking those 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 speakers out front. I'm like, oh, so come back and like drop the master fader a little bit. I mean, this is all rehearsal. I didn't, mm-hmm. I I didn't do that during the show, but they actually hauled me around a little bit too. Ended up at Kansas in Kansas City and uh, back to the Victory and so on. That Man. was that's a whole different thing. That was with the Victory's uh, production. Or? No, it was a different production company. Uh, we can get to that. That's later. That's later in the story. Man, we're going to have to do part three. I mean, we may have to. So anyway, Tim sold his company. So we got back, and he starts having me catalog gear. Mm-hmm. Like, what does he have? What does he do? What, what is his? What's not? Starts mm-hmm. has a new building. Moved into a brand new building. Uh, it's actually a pawn shop in Evansville now. And so... Well, if he's, if he's paying his... his uh rigging guy five grand that what? was that was the festival that paid that oh okay mm-hmm. so anyway we get back 
and he moves into this new building and I was going to have my own office and all this fun stuff. We start tearing down gear and fixing it and stuff. And then he's, then he comes up to me and says, Hey, I want you to start cataloging, cataloging gear. Mm-hmm. So I don't think anything of it. I think it's for insurance or something. Mm-hmm. No, come to find out he was selling the company uh-huh. to, uh, to a place in, in Louisville called Axis. And Man. I don't know if you know who Axis is, but they are mm-hmm. top shelf live sound in this area. Basically, by doing that festival, he got enough attention to sell. And he told us after the fact, he said, hey, you're all going to have jobs. No, none of us had jobs. Not even his brother. Even his brother didn't get a job. Man. And I saw him later on. So after all that. You saw his brother or you saw Tim? Saw Tim. So after all that, I moved back to Nashville. Wait. Have you seen Gene since then? No. He's probably dead. So wait, now you've gone from Indiana to Arizona to Nashville, back to Indiana, then to Arizona, and now you've gone back to Nashville? Yep. Nice. Wait, Kansas City was in there. No, that's later. Ugh. Yeah, we, we may there have... There jumping ahead in the story we, we again. May don't have, even know it. We may have to do a part three. I don't know. They may not want... They may not care. This story is this anachronistic point. as fuck. Mm. This story is just one big repeating triangle where he goes from Indiana to Arizona to Nashville and back to Indiana. Oh, by the way, I'm moving to Arizona next week. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so I end up back in Nashville. It was it was actually kind of interesting. It was a, a friend of mine that I that was at my first band that was in that oxymoron band. Mm-hmm. He was down there doing his own his own album. He actually had some funding and he actually had a producer. Hmm. Uh, the producer was actually the guy, the ex- one of the executive producers for Nashville Star. Uh, his name was uh, my friend's name was Jarrett, and so he actually had some funding and some interest to do a record. And so he asked me to come down there and help. You know, because nice. he, he knew me and he knew Brian. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, him and Brian at this point had, had become kind of friends because they were both living in Nashville at the time. So is this where you reunite with Brian? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Not that we were ever really apart, but, you know. We, we Ryan friends. and Brian are never too far we, apart. We are no. always like this. Mm-hmm. So, so Jarrett, he says, okay, I, I want you guys to come, come down and start working on my record. So we come down there and we end up in the groove room. Uh, Jared is Jared is minus the porn king. Oh, yeah, porn king was gone. Yeah, Uh, but there were still lava lamps. Yes. Okay. Well, they may have been gone. Oh fuck, dude, (sighs) you're ruining the whole thing. Anyway, so Jared actually had some money, so they they were paying for this for these sessions. We had three days, and we start tracking, and I'm just I had been out of the recording thing for a while, and I'm just like, man. I can't just go back to Radio Shack or something. So I'm like, fuck it. I'll just move back down. You know, mm. Just move back down and just do it. So that's what I did. So we, we were at Groove Room. We were doing all that fun stuff. And then we end up, Brian was actually interning at uh, Blue Desert Studios in the UA Tower. And I started going out there, met Brent Mason. This is actually on one of the Dave sessions. You know, If anybody who knows who Brent Mason is, he's one of the premier studio guitar players in Nashville still is and yeah that's what I was going to say for anyone who doesn't know who Brent Mason is um what's what's the kind of stuff Brent Mason would play on like everybody who has listened to any country probably over the past 10 20 years has very 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 likely heard Brent Mason and just didn't know it maybe 15 years he's probably been on of all the top 40 country records he's probably been on 65 percent of them uh, right, so playing, like I was saying, playing, if, playing lead stuff. If like, you've listened to country you, music, over you hear you hear years. a big nasty lead on one of this new new country these new new country records. There, it's most likely going to be Brent Mason. Uh, he actually has a signature pedal from Wampler, I believe. Yeah, really. Yeah, I watched him roll in with a with a Telecaster and a Pro Junior, a Fender Pro Junior, little bastard, and was just killing it in the in Blue Desert. It was actually a Hank Williams tribute session. And I was so stuck up my own ass. He invited me out to a show, and I didn't really care who he was. I was just wanting to get to my session because our sessions were late at night. Was this when you were too busy playing flash bowling? Yes. This is back when flash games were a thing. So (laughs) I'm pissed because our session got bumped. We were supposed to have a start time of like 6 o'clock in the afternoon Mm -hmm. or in the evening, and their session had gone over. And so I was pissed. 
And so I'm out in the lounge at, in Blue Desert playing flash bowling on my buddy Brian's laptop. And so Brent Mason rolls in. He's like, hey, man, wow, that's cool. You're working here now. That's, you know, that's, that's awesome. Uh, I got a show coming up. If you want to come out and get some tickets or something, I'm like, uh huh. Cool. Strike. Yeah. See you later. <laughs> you know, that was, that was, that was it. Like I had no sense. Like I was still young, you know, maybe mm-hmm. I, I was 20, had no sense of connection and all that stuff. This guy was being genuine and awesome to me. And I was just being shitty. So yeah, he played on Aaron Lewis's album. Mm-hmm. His Aaron Lewis from Stained. Yeah. His country album. Yeah. I'm looking him up. Like I was saying, you've probably heard Brent Mason. Just didn't know it at the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm 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 an, an unofficial intern at Blue Desert. Uh, not really working there, but I'm allowed. Like I knew all the codes. I could get into the building and and mess with stuff. And allowed. I, I actually did assist on a couple. They were doing voiceover stuff. They were doing voiceover lessons in the studio. Hmm. And so I actually came in and assisted Brian on a voiceover lesson that that was super boring <laughs> is that giving like recording lessons to actors voice actors uh like mostly for commercials for commercials and stuff so they had these mock commercials that they would do so they were teaching people how to emote with their voice and how to control their proximity effect and all that stuff to yeah. get different effects and so on and so forth and so it was interesting and the and the lady who was teaching was was knew what the hell she was talking about. Like, I learned I learned a few things. Mm-hmm. But it was so boring. Because, I mean, there wasn't any editing to do. All we were there for was running the gear. Yeah. Setting up the mic, hitting the record button, playing it back so that they could figure out what they did wrong for hours. So, uh, Blue Desert at the UA Tower. They close. They actually move to a new space in Murfreesboro. Uh, Murfreesboro is a, is a kind of like a... Uh, a suburb of Nashville, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit farther than the suburb, you know. So interesting story. I actually, so Tyler play, plays plays uh, this this cabinet. Uh, it's actually not a cabinet. It's actually a, a a cabinet without a head in it. It's a it's a Marshall JTM sixty. It was a three ten. Yeah, it was a three ten. Uh, I actually blew up the head, blew up the head at uh, the new Blue Desert Studios in Murfreesboro. So that's where it died. That's where it died. Really cool facility. They basically just moved everything that they had from the UA Tower uh, to this new facility, but they had this huge rehearsal space. This was this space was actually for uh, rehearsing small orchestras. You you could play you could, you could probably have played you know fifty yard touch football in, inside this room. Oh how really? Was. Yeah. Well, we're, we had a session going. It was actually a, another friend of mine. Um, and well, he was just being difficult playing this good enough game, which, you know, if you know me at all, good enough is usually not by good enough. You mean do a take, maybe do a second take and then decide, ah, that's good enough. We'll move on to something else. Yeah. He just didn't want to, he felt like he was wasting time. He felt like he, he was, he was, he was wasting time by doing it, doing it again because he not, he had to get this drum part of this bass part of this. What? And we're like, dude. You know, you don't get these basics done right, everything else suffers. Right. What you mean is he's trying to work too fast. Yeah. And just not listening properly. And, well, you know, he just didn't have, not that Brian and I had any real experience, but we knew when it wasn't good enough, you know. So, anyway, I got grumpy again. So, I went out to this big live sound room, and we had had a, a whole pile of gear out there. We'd rented some amps and things, and... uh so it's all sitting out there, and I plug into this JTM60, and I crank it to 11, and I just roast it. It sounded really good for about five minutes, and then it just makes this, and then smoke. Was it blue smoke? Yes. Oh, the dreaded blue smoke. Yeah, the dreaded blue smoke, and it was gone. The upside is I really didn't like the, the way that amp sounded that much anyway. Didn't record very well. Anything you did was kind of oversaturated, so I was. It was never really high on my list to repair. The grapes are probably sour. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. It was never high on my list to repair, but it was. It's actually a better story than an amp. <laughs> <laughs> it explains now why uh, that amp 
former amp has flowers in it now instead of an actual amp head. Yeah. No, so the ending of that Nashville trip is 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 not so great. Working at Guitar Center, I actually did meet a few people. No, I was a pretty pretty good salesman at Guitar Center at that at that time. Brent Mason was one of my customers. Uh, Mark Townsend, who I mentioned, uh, met Clint Black. Yeah, I met Clint Black. Oh, he almost bought one of my modded SD ones. Nice. Yeah, it's very strange. He actually like if you see a photo of Clint Black that's all dressed out. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what he looks like. The, the little smile lines and everything. Mm-hmm. This guy must like have cold cream three times a day or something because his skin was flawless. Like it was remarkable how just photo ready this guy was. Well, if he's going to a place like Guitar Center where he knows he'll be recognized and people will be snapping photos, but but maybe but, he would. But there's another side of this story. Oh, all right, so. You're working at Guitar Center in Nashville. You're working at Guitar Center in Nashville. All right, transport me. And so every now and then, there'd be some famous person walk in all the time. Bela Fleck was one of my customers. Wait, describe the scenery. I'm not there yet. Bela Fleck was actually one of my customers. And so he's a big big name, huge name. He's like the Jimi Hendrix of the banjo, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Victor Wooten was was playing with the Flecktones at the time. So I'm telling you, these guys were big, and they would just walk in, no big deal. Uh, Tim McGraw and Faith, Faith Hill, they actually showed up on my day off, just walking through the store, buying stuff, no big deal. But Clint Black, on the other hand, his handler has us shut down a whole section of the store, and, and they roll his tour bus up to the back of the building, and they bring him in through the back, and then they park him in the vintage room. You never saw him. Hmm. They made such a big deal out of him. It, it was all his handler, though, because he yeah. was super nice and super genuine. But it was actually, that was the exception to the rule as far as what I saw mm-hmm. for famous people coming in and out of that store, you know. I imagine around a place like Nashville, it's probably just so commonplace that people might not get as excited to see someone like that in there. Because yeah. any given day, they may see them in there. I now, mean, if you were to see, you know, Faith Hill or Tim McGraw or Clint Black roll into Guitar Center in Evansville, it'd be different. That would be a big deal, but... For for Nashville, it wasn't a big deal. Like we knew mm-hmm. how to handle it. You just let them do their thing. You know, if they need something, they'll come get you. Right. The only people. thing that made me nervous was the fact that my department manager was like, "Hey, I heard you mod pedals. You got one?" I'm like, "Yeah." Well, bring it in there. Let's see if Clint Black wants one. Nope. Okay. <laughs> you, know? you, just, you just give us like a little Scooby Doo. Yeah. yeah. You start yanking on your shirt collar. Yeah. Uh, hot in here. He's getting scared. He needs no, a Scooby it, snack. It, he's actually a very impressive guitar player. Like, you know, you don't think that some of these country guys are going to be that good and like really cook mm-hmm. their fucking guitar. He did. It was strange. He had a, like a PD Classic Fifty, which is not a very expensive guitar amp. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he tries out a couple pedals, and then they bring they bring me in, and I meet him. And like hand it to him, like hey, he plays it. He's like, "Huh, I have one of these. You say, you're saying that you can make mine sound like this?" I'm like, "Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you can have this one." Oh yeah, I was about there. Yeah. I was about there. But then they're like, "Okay, well, yeah, cool. Thanks for showing it to me. Uh, we'll let you know." And so I walk out, and his guitar tech follows me. He's like, "So, what'd you do to it?" Just raise the capacitance a little bit and do this and just I'm like, well, yeah, but all right, cool. We'll let you know. They ended up buying a Ryan Salty. And if you ever heard one of these things, these things are trash. And so that that was Guitar Center. That was fun. Uh, Bela Fleck was one of my customers. Brent Mason was one of my customers. Uh, Mark Townsend, uh, that producer that I worked worked with uh, on Reliant K. Interesting story. Tim actually showed up at Guitar Center one time, and because he owed me about six hundred dollars of back pay, mm-hmm. he's like, "Hey, Ryan, uh, I remember you." And he's just like backing out of the store. He found you in Nashville. No, he was just there. Oh, no, he was just there, and I was like, "Hey, that's Tim. I know him. He owes me about eight hundred dollars." Wait, I wait, better wait. go you talk went, to him. You went from six hundred to eight hundred in like thirty seconds. Whatever. Interest. I don't know. I don't know how many. I'm, I don't know how many actual hours it was that I was documenting his gear so he could sell it. Uh, I think I wrote it all down, like what days I was there and what hours they were. So mm-hmm. 
all I know, it was between six and eight mm. that he owed me, that he never paid me. So I mean, since it was late, it probably was closer to 800. Yeah. So, anyway, uh, yeah, I, Tim was there. That was cool. And like I said, he was just backing out of the store. How did he was, pay you? Did he just happen to have six to $800 on him? No, he never paid me. Mm. Oh, no, he's, he's saying still, he, he bailed out of the store so that he wouldn't have to talk oh. to me. Oh. So that he wouldn't have to talk to me. Like, he just, like, backing out of the store the whole time. Like, I, it was years later, so I didn't care. Mm-hmm. I mean, if he was going to cut me a check, that would have been nice. But at that point, I didn't really give you know, I didn't really care. <laughs> so, interesting story. Blue Desert 2 actually shut down, too. Uh, the majority owner. So, uh, the head engineer who actually owned the original studio had gotten uh, an investor to open up the new one. Spent a lot of money. Uh, the majority owner decided it was not a uh, a good uh, business investment and uh, locked him out. Mm-hmm. So all of the head engineer's gear was actually locked in the studio, and he never got it back. Oh man! Oh, I what happened to that gear? Uh, we assume it was just sold. Uh, we don't know. Uh, they probably had an auction at some point, and uh, the majority owner of of New Blue Desert. It was. I think that's what it was called, actually. New Blue Desert. Uh, just took it all. Well, that's a dumb name. No wonder it. New didn't Blue work out. Desert. New Blue Desert. New in Blue. in the middle of Nashville. Sounds like an Arizona kind of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> kinda actually kind of does. Yeah. You know? But just goes to show you, don't trust anybody. Is it possible that the uh, majority owner was not paying the bills and he too got locked out? Mm, we don't think so. Uh, I mean, this is all hearsay, so who knows? Mm-hmm. Who knows what the actual deal was? Uh, we were not in the know, me and Brian. So uh, all I know is that uh, the engineering guy never signed over his gear, but he never got it back because it was on the premises and he was locked out. Man, that sucks. And uh, and I know, like years later, that he never got it back. I mean, some of this stuff is like so rare that mm-hmm. you'll never get another one. Uh, yeah, because he'd been in the recording industry for 25, 30 years at that point. Really talented engineer. I can't remember his name. Brian would know. We'll have to have Brian on here to tell his side of the story. Ugh, this is boring. Five years later. So I'm divorced and I'm bored. I see my friend Scott has a band. Where are you at at this time? I'm in Evansville. Okay, so you're back in Indiana now. Yeah, I'm back in Indiana. So I'm back in Indiana. I see on Facebook, my my Facebook that I have had for two years, but I never use. Uh, your Facebook that your, uh, was it your girlfriend or your wife used to update for you? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm on Facebook. I'm bored. You've uh, finally taken over your own account. Yes. Yeah. Though she probably had access to it for a long time because I never changed the password. Hell, she may have access to it now. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> if she does, please share the podcast link. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you're listening to this, <clears throat> I see my my friend Scott starting a band. I was in a band with him, uh, two different bands with him. And uh, yeah, I kind of butted my way into that. I think we already told this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't actually invited to join the band. I just showed up with all my gear. <laughs> and insinuated yourself into it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I just took control. It's kind of my thing, mm-hmm. you know, kind of being big boss man, showing up the young guy. And then the young guy starts playing perfect under the bridge. And I'm like, okay. Yeah, perfect is giving me a lot of credit. <clears throat> For those of you listening to it at home, we covered this story on a previous episode called Call the Amber Lamps. Uh, you can find that at Conscious Effort Creative. Uh, dig down in the archives and the podcast. You it's can like, find it on iTunes as well if you want to listen to that and, like and hear more four. of this story. So. Yeah, I kind of butted my way in there. Uh, kind of became the uh, the reluctant leader of the band because nobody has a had a sense of urgency if we're doing anything other than me. Because I didn't really have anything else going on, so <laughs> <laughs> that's no fault of it of them. This, it, you know, I'm just weird. Well, that at that time, I was still in high school. Yeah, I'm kind of. I didn't know what urgency anybody, was. Anybody know, who knows me, I'm kind of a hit the gas kind of guy. Like mm-hmm. I really don't wait around. Wait, wait, I really don't wait around for anybody. I just kind of go for it, mm-hmm. and most of the time it works out. Other times it definitely doesn't. So, about the only other thing about uh, my engineering 
was I, I did do uh, a little uh, musical production. I actually got drug around the country a little bit. Not not a bunch. Uh, Stanley Jackson Productions. They do some really awesome uh, musicals hmm. that Stanley wrote. He did he did the the scripting, the musical score, all these cool things. Like very very talented guy. Super hilarious. Like he actually was in a couple of these shows mm-hmm. as a character and being director and writing everything. Like I mean, come on. Talk about the full package. And he's just a super nice guy. So Did you bu- want to marry him? <clears throat> yeah, I think he's married already. Oh. You just, <laughs> already taken. You were talking him up like he was someone you wanted to marry. Stanley sounds yesterday. like a guy who certainly has a vision for what he wants oh, and is yeah. willing to go the lengths he needs to go That's in order what was to bring impressive. it to life. That's what was impressive. Like self made. Mm-hmm. Just self made. Like nobody did anything for him other than and to, to end up putting on a show at the Victory and then end up putting on a show at, uh, I can't remember the name of the theater. In this is Kansas when you City. went out to Kansas City. Yeah. Like, just did it all himself. Uh, I mean, he, he knew who to hire, mm-hmm. like me. <laughs> you know. You want to help you get that dirt off your shoulder? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, so yeah. Stanley was awesome. Uh, it was awesome experience. I hadn't really done musical production since high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was very challenging. The Kansas City thing, we didn't even get a dress rehearsal on their system. And though it wasn't the best sound I'd ever done, it was still passable. Mm-hmm. I didn't get to do the final mix, and uh, you know. Mm-hmm. But if you look up Stanley Jackson Productions, you'll, you'll see something that I've done. So. so yeah, then we end up here doing all the cool stuff. Present day, conscious present day, effort. Present day, conscious effort. Uh, got a good opportunity on this building. And really the quality that we're, we're getting out here is pretty remarkable. You know, we did a good job blueprinting our gear and choosing what we choosing what we bought and what we didn't. And <clears throat> as expensive as it was, we're batting way above what we should mm-hmm. because we did it right. You know, and we paid our dues. We learned our lessons. <clears throat> Made a lot of mistakes. Oh man! In order to learn everything that we had, there is the, how many songs did we end up starting? Oh, somewhere there is an archive of about what we say seventy, maybe eighty songs, somewhere between I there. I think it was like seventy-four. 74 different tunes that we actually started and never finished. We put out a four-song EP, and there's an archive of about at least 70 other songs that we have started. Yeah. Over, what, about a seven-year period? Uh, the actual recording process was probably five years. 70, 74 songs, I think. And now, we can pump out uh, an EP in a weekend, mm-hmm. more or less. Like, you know, if, if that's what we were doing, like, okay, we have a weekend. Oh, yeah, we can do right. it. Assuming everyone's free yeah. and everyone can all get in at the same time. <laughs> yeah. And that's and that's re- really is the problem, you know. But we don't expect that. We just want to be, you know, a facilitator for people that want to come in and create. So to recap, you started out Conscious Effort University years ago, Washington, Indiana. You went to the about, conservatory about in Arizona. Yeah. Well, 97. 97 at, at the Conscious Effort University. Went to conservatory in Arizona. 2003. Went to Nashville, intern. 2003. You left Nashville and went touring. 2004. Then you came back to Nashville. 2005. And now present day, making records. You're working on your, what, you're producing your third record now. You've done some uh, musicals in that meantime as well. Yeah. Actually, it'd uh, be my fourth record. Uh, I was on uh, an assistant on uh, Calabash. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So fourth record. So, yeah, I'm pretty happy with it. My goal is to bring people in, bring music in that I like, even if it's not really my thing. But I'm gonna make it sound as good as possible, mm-hmm. and then we aren't gonna release it until I know that it's gonna blow people's minds that it was done in Lagodi, Indiana. Mm-hmm. And that's where we're at with Breathing Room. Yep. You know, already. It's not even finished yet. Already. It's going to blow people's minds. <laughs> Hope so. We look forward to telling you more stories in the future. Hopefully haven't. Hopefully, we haven't bored you too much with my uh, <laughs> remembrances. If we have, there's always episode 13. Or 7. 
or four. Four is good. I remember four. It was it was awesome. I listen to all those. Um, in the meantime, um, yeah. See you guys next time. Cool. See ya. Bye. Bye. Bye.